Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Matt Gurney, journalist and co-founder of The Line, Hello. Well, hello. Today on the show, artificial irrelevance, why you should not believe the hype about chat GPT. Also, liars, deniers, and bears. Oh my. I chased a polar bear down a climate news click hole, Matt, and I'm going to drag you down there with me. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Welcome to Shortcuts, where we're going to talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Josh Shepard. Jacob Vull, Mark Innes, Alex McMahon, Krista Lee Woodcock, Rob McCulloch, Stephen Dory, and Ian. I'm Ian, an IT professional living in Tampa Bay, and I support Canada Land because it keeps me up to date and the investigative journalism is top notch. You may have heard of ChatGPT. ChatGPT. Maybe you've heard of it. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence prototype that you can command to write pretty much any text. This promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. Have you heard about ChatGPT? Have you heard about ChatGPT? I have heard nothing but news stories about ChatGPT, Matt. I've heard a lot more about it from the media than practical applications or there's a lot of hype around this. 
Yeah, I've heard about it. And I mean, I think we all probably actually got sucked into the other earlier obsession about it, which was not the text-based one, but a few months ago, you could make images. Like you could go into, like I did, go into Dolly Mini, I think it was called. And I said like Captain Kirk making pizza with Elmo and it would do that, right? And it was it was funny. And some people were, were doing it to create really funny, weirdo things. Others were trying to figure out how to make it do beautiful original art. So that kind of started this, I think. It started with images and then with chat GPT. More recently, it became about not just text, but in some cases, like essays or paragraphs or answers to complicated questions. It was a super fun gimmick, the image maker. I'm sure you could have Captain Kirk with Elmo, sort of, you know? It always looked a little freaky and weird, but I guess they're getting better. So we played with that on the internet, and everybody was sharing images, and then we kind of got bored of that. And then the text-based thing came out. You know, people might remember that this all, you know, comes from OpenAI. Elon Musk was a founder. He resigned in 2018. This uh, AI chatbot, it stands for Chat Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, Okay. Journalists have just been taking the bait like crazy. This is like a product. This is a private company that's put a product out there. And everybody's got the same shtick with this. Make short podcast intro for front burner about chat GPT. Write me a short story about love. And see... If you can write a TikTok script for me. That was Globe and Mail for the last one. Toronto Star, I wrote a story about ChatGPT's AI. Then I dared it to write a better one. CBC, can the new AI tool ChatGPT replace human work? Judge for yourself. Business Insider, I asked ChatGPT to do my work and write an Insider article for me. The Atlantic, hold up though. The last few paragraphs weren't written by me. I actually got ChatGPT. Everybody's getting ChatGPT to do their homework for them. They love this device. It's a little bit hacky at this point. I'm a little tired of it. And it's it's it always kind of has the same results. It's like this magic trick where people are like, check it out. And then it does the thing like kind of poorly. And we're supposed to marvel that it came kind of close and and then be afraid that we're go- we're gonna lose our jobs. We're not gonna lose our jobs to AI. There's some basic, I think, almost misinformation going on about this. And the best thing that I heard about ChatGPT was on the Ezra Klein show. And he had on a scientist, an AI expert, Gary Marcus, who gave a skeptical take on AI, which he thinks is a tremendously exciting technology that he's, you know, dedicated a lot of his career to working on. But he clarified it for me. And and basically what came out of this, Matt, for me was that the way to think about ChatGPT is that it's incredibly good at bullshit, They use bullshit in a very specific sense, not like, oh, let's just dismiss this. That's a bunch of bullshit. But it's about bullshitting your way through something. It's about mimicry. It's about a pastiche. It's about like, what would something sound like based on the way it's been done before? And then they can kind of come up with surprisingly good simulations. You know, it's kind of the way that you might be able to do like an impersonation of an actor that's really good, but that doesn't mean that I want to cast you instead of that actor in a movie to, to deliver a great performance. I think that makes sense. When you were talking a few minutes ago about all the articles you've been reading about this, I was very much self-consciously thinking of the article. I wrote about it a few months ago. I interviewed chat GTP about itself. I asked it what its capabilities were. I asked it a bunch of questions about what it could do. I tried to figure out if it thought it was sentient, things like that. I think I was a bit in on the joke. I mean, I was very clear that I was interviewing this thing as a gimmick, but I don't know if I'm a skeptical. Let me put it that way. 
about its potential as you are. Because the one thing that jumps out at me, particularly about chat GPT, is that this is a very early iteration of the technology and this stuff learns faster than we do. Technology moves a lot faster than we appreciate sometimes. Sometimes it's slower. We've been expecting fusion imminently for about 70 years, but there are times when the technology does catch us by surprise. I've been talking with a lot of AI experts over the last couple of months, and Jesse, I think you're right in that they view chat GTP as a gimmick. It's a toy. It, like It does parlor tricks, and I think once you sort of see how it answers a question vaguely, you can start anticipating how it's going to answer your next question. But the one thing I do think the AI guys have been telling me that's interesting is that this stuff's going faster than they expected it to. And the nature of AI is that it will probably get faster as it gets better and it will get better as it gets faster. So is chat GPT going to make you and I obsolete? No, but 10 years from now, what will that technology be doing and what will it be able to do that it can't do today? I'm not worried about my next paycheck. I am wondering if there's an industry left at all by 2030. Let me clarify my position on this. I'm not saying that I'm not afraid of the robots, but I'm afraid of, of different things than you are. I, I think that we have a category error here, and I think that a lot of people have a very linear way of thinking like, oh, it's pretty good, but it makes mistakes, but it's a, it's a robot. It'll get better, and then it will surpass us. And I think we're skipping over what we mean when we say it will get better. And, and I actually want to play – I'm going to play a bunch of this. This is MP Michelle Rempel-Garner in Parliament sounding alarm bells about AI. And then there's one issue that has never been talked about in the House of Commons, not once. I checked. And that's generative AI. Now, many of you, this is the Cassandra moment. I'll go, oh, she's going to talk about the robots here. If you have not heard of something called ChatGPT, it was released last week, I ask you to Google it. Google ChatGPT. This is an AI that doesn't just regurgitate human speech. It parses and can nuance and come up with its own type of thought. This is here. This is creating massive waves. And in the next year, likely in the next year, it will displace lawyers. You can just ask the thing to write up a contract for you and any country's jurisprudence. It can come up with interpret legal rulings. It writes its own code. To give you an example of the speaker, I asked it this question. Write an introduction about yourself, ChatGPT, to the Canadian House of Commons making the argument that your development shouldn't be regulated. So I asked it to do its own GR. Okay, so first of all, that's incorrect. It, it cannot parse or interpret. What it can do and the way in which it gets better is when it makes a mistake, and it makes ridiculous nonsensical mistakes all the time, it can constantly analyze whether or not people say it made a mistake. And, and it's always getting input. Like, did, did I get a fact wrong? Did that sound right or wrong? And then it can improve to kind of fake it better and better until it doesn't make mistakes anymore. That's not the same thing as thinking or parsing or interpreting. It's always operating on, on the surface level because it's always just doing mimicry. And like to break that down a little bit as to why I'm not afraid of it taking my job. I am afraid of it, but I'll tell you what I'm afraid of in a minute. I'm not afraid of it taking my job because... The way in which we build news stories begins with information from reality. It's, it's not, can I make a plausible sounding news story that sounds like a good news story? I mean, that's really easy. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just killed four people. That's a hell of a news story. But if it's not true, it's not a very good news story, right? So it, it, it can't fact check the way that a reporter 
would call people up and find independent sources. It doesn't begin to build with, on a scaffolding of like, oh, I found out a piece of information. Let me go verify to see if that's true. Now let me get a few people to comment on that. You know, now let me bring in some historical context or some expert analysis. Is there any research? Like th- that part it could do, bringing in the research. But it's not building truth from reality. It's just it's just perfecting that surface layer, right? It's it, it's just trying to make something that could be passed off, and it will get there, where it will be able to write news stories that it would be very hard to detect that it's all made up. And that's the part that I'm afraid of. One thing it will do, and I think there are already some programs doing something similar to this, it will be able to write very simple news stories based on information that is just sort of loaded algorithmically into it. I think there already are versions of this. I could see sometime in, in the near future If you want to know who won the baseball game the night before, it'll tell you what the score was, who hit the runs, how many innings it went. If you want to know what the markets did yesterday, it'll be able to generate a story saying the Dow was up, the TSX was down, these stocks did well, these stocks did badly. Weather reports, things like that. I could see a very baseline capability very soon where these programs could spit out a very convincing, simple article that is based on information that is just sort of accessed automatically through some online source. Will it be doing real-time analysis or real-time reporting? No. But you have to remember about chat GPT, one of the things about it is that it is largely cut off from the internet. And I mean, obviously when people might think that's a weird thing to say, because you interact with it over the internet, but it doesn't have an internet search function. It doesn't have the ability to kind of go, well, here, that's an interesting idea. Let me go find out that for you. Or let me, like, if you asked the the AI thing, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? It won't know because it's been programmed with like a version of the internet that's been loaded into it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do get what you're saying. And I think I agree with you, at least in the medium term, but we also are using this thing when we've tied one of its hands behind its back. That's an interesting point. I think it will get better and better. And, and once it's feeding from the everything that's out there, there's a couple of interesting dynamics, one of which is it's only basing its simulations, its mimicry on what has been. So it can it can only recreate, and, and of course people have pointed out one of the dangers, which is it recreates our biases. So if you say, you know, to AI, like, draw me a picture of a, of a person throwing a ball, the person will be white, you know, and that applies to all kinds of prejudices that it has. The concern I have is that when it does get accurate enough in its simulations that we can't tell the difference, one thing that it can do that we can't is just flood the zone infinitely, you know? So, you know, people have been talking about how it's going to put marketers out of work. I have no doubt that it can just iterate really quickly and generate ad copy and then analyze it for like, did that ad copy sell products? And probably within nanoseconds, it could change ad copy to a point where it's got like the best ad copy possible. But that ad copy would be effective because it would be promising you something impossible. You know, again, the disconnect from reality is the danger. When you have robots pumping out what seem to be true news stories at such volume and with such accurate simulation that you cannot tell the difference, if it basically removes our ability to distinguish fact from fiction. I think that's fair. If people are using this stuff maliciously, it will overwhelm us just by saturation, right? They'll just flood the zone with bullshit. Like when this stuff starts getting good enough to trick a significant percentage of the population, or maybe not, maybe tricks the wrong word, to convince a significant percentage of the population, 
what the hell do we do then? Because it's completely asymmetrical, right? Like if you can convince half the population and you get some server farm somewhere running a million copies of this thing and they're all trying to sell you like air duct cleaning services or something. I don't know if that's the dystopia we were worried about, but it doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun either. It might be the dystopia that we get, yeah. you know, and, and I want to be clear here. I'm not going to be holier than thou. I'm a, I'm a hack like the rest. I, I certainly tried to get this thing to do my homework. I, I gave it a whirl last night, Matt, and I asked chat GPT, give me an idea for an episode of the Canada land podcast. It was decent. Uh, the, the best result it gave me was this one. Journalism in jeopardy, the state of Canadian media and the fight to keep it alive. It's not bad. We could do that right now. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's kind of boilerplate. It's kind of generic. There's no specificity. But like, if 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 somebody joined our team, you know, as an intern or something, and, and they pitched that, I'd say, okay, you're kind of getting the style right. And there's some nice alliteration there with journalism in jeopardy, and that is what we talk about: the state of Canadian media and and the fight. You understand that we're trying to create stakes when we when we pitch a news story. But what's it actually about? So I asked I asked Chat GPT to iterate a bit. I said, can you make that more interesting and funny? And so it said, journalism in jeopardy, the state of Canadian media and the fight to keep it from becoming irrelevant. Uh, all right. I don't know. It's still missing something. So I asked it, can you add some celebrity Canadian guests? And then it spat out, journalism in jeopardy, the state of Canadian media and the fight to keep it from becoming irrelevant with guest investigative journalist Gian Gameshi. You know what? Honestly, a lot of people would download that episode. <laughs> You would have very high <laughs> listenership if you actually are able to pull that off. Uh, it's true. That would get a lot of downloads, but I would fire the intern who pitched that story because if you are so disconnected, if you're just going through our archives and figuring what names do these guys use and what what topics seem to be in their, in their wheelhouse, let me just spit that back at them and see if I can make it through. It's just about bullshitting your way through something as opposed to actually knowing what the fuck is going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm not worried yet. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Matt, we duly note news stories to make sure that people don't miss them. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, that feels like half my job sometimes is just going, all right, all right, all right, duly noted. Let's begin with this one. And I mean, this is just a like a, a terrible story that was reported by the CBC, a really alarming story. And I'll tell you, I first came to know of this story when a lot of like anti-vax type people were getting very angry and linking to it. So I thought like, well, this story has to be bullshit because this type of rage bait, almost always you click through and the story is not as enraging as, as, as it's sort of presented. But this one, this one was disturbing. The headline is guards cleared in hospital death of Stephanie Warner. Here's the footage no jury will ever see. And there's this video that was not supposed to ever come out, but the CBC fought for the video to be released. And the video shows what happened in Toronto General Hospital in May 2020, in the early days of the pandemic. A woman named Danielle Stephanie Warner was in hospital. She was seeking treatment for a respiratory illness. Turns out she was misdiagnosed. They thought she had COVID. She didn't. But she was admitted to the COVID ward. And she left the COVID ward to get food. And this very slight woman can be seen in this video in the hospital with her mask around her neck. And you see two security guards approach her and accost her. And then, and this is a frightening moment, somebody moves the camera so you can't see what happens. And then the next thing you see, they're hauling her away in, I guess, like a wheelchair or something, and, and her legs are limp. And we know that what happened in, in the part that somebody didn't want us to see is that they took her down and they put a lot of uh, weight and force on her. They initially, the security guard claimed they had to because she was fighting. She was kicking and punching. But the security guard, Shane Hutley, later admitted that that was a lie. And they were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. And she never got up again. She died after that happened. So this is something that, I don't know, nobody goes to work wanting to do that to somebody. And, you know, the circumstances during those early days of the pandemic with somebody with their mask off who's like, you know, in the hospital for COVID, I could imagine that the security guards wanted to get a mask on her. Anyhow, at trial, I could see a lot of slack being given to these security guards, but we'll never know because in a pretty shocking ruling, it got quashed. A judge threw out the case and uh, said there's not enough evidence for this to go to trial. And uh, CBC News has learned that the Crown won't appeal. So, you know, everything gets politicized these days. And this story obviously supports, I guess, one side of a growing rift in society around whether, you know, the mandates went too far. But one thing I want to duly note beyond just duly noting the story itself is that we know about this and we saw the footage because of the CBC, right? And whatever side of this growing rift, a lot of people want to think that the CBC is on, they're the ones who told you about this, and they're, they're the ones who fought for your right to see as much as was seeable about what happened to this woman. I don't know if the broader public appreciates just how hollowed out a lot of private sector newsrooms are. And again, like I, I have mixed feelings on the CBC. I, I, I like the people that work there, but I don't know what the right role of it is, and I don't know if we have the right CBC for the challenges of today. But I also know that to a pretty horrifying extent, 
the backbone of journalism these days is being done by the CBC, not because they're necessarily better at it on an individual basis, but because they outnumber everybody. And you look sometimes at a press conference and you've got, okay, well, here's someone there from Bell Media doing some radio reporting. You got a global news camera there. And then you've got like three CBC reporters there. And to one hand, that might be overkill. I've always felt the CBC is sometimes overstaffed in some areas, but in the big parts of the country, the only reporter on the ground these days might well be a CBC reporter. You know, you make a great point. Things are complicated. This is a nuanced situation. And I have lots of fundamental problems with the way that the CBC is challenging, you know, your upstart news organization and mine. And there's big problems like with the way that they allocate the resources. There's tons of problems. But the fact of the matter is, for better or for worse, they are the best resource news organization in this country. And there are journalists working there who have the resources to do the work that private media increasingly does not. And we can criticize them at that at that systemic level, and we can even criticize the stories themselves. But to think, as so many people kind of like casually and lazily do, that that means that all of those journalists are not interested in going out there and telling you what's happening in this country is, is you know, it's insulting and it's just wrong. It's bullshit. So even the, the anti-vax, anti-mask warriors out there have to rely on information that is reported from the CBC because in many cases, they're the only ones who are out there getting the information. I remember years ago saying to one of my colleagues, I was at the National Post at the time, and I just remarked to someone next to me in the office, have you noticed how many of our stories have to have the words as first reported by the CBC in like the first or second paragraph? And it wasn't always the case, but it was getting that way. And again, it's not because the CBC is just a cut above everybody else in terms of the quality of the individual reporter. It's that they can afford to put somebody on a story and actually have them spend a couple hours making phone calls, maybe actually travel to the site in a way that the newspapers and the TV stations, they just don't do it anymore. And maybe they would have 10 years ago. Today, no. They don't have the people. Duly noted. Matt, do you have something to duly note today? Yeah, it's a brief one. And it's following on a lot of the uh, the big stories that came out this week after Ontario made its big healthcare announcement that it would be expanding the use of what, what they call them, community clinics, I think was the euphemism they're using. But it would either be it would be private sector clinics, potentially for profit, but not necessarily for profit that would be providing some procedures in Ontario. And that could include diagnostic tests. Uh, the first phase will be a cataract surgeries. And then in a couple of years, the plan is to have joint replacement surgeries as well, knees and hips. And I was reading some of the, the coverage about this, and I was looking at the press conference uh, when this was announced earlier in the week, and what jumped out at me, and it was largely because of a, of a recent family experience we had where a relative of mine was in a lot of pain, was in some discomfort, and got recommended to get checked out for a hernia. Turns out, in fact, there were two hernias, and that, that certainly explained the lack of mobility and discomfort, and was sent to the Schuldice Clinic, which is a bit north of Toronto, which is an existing sort of grandfathered-in clinic that sort of operates on this model of all we do is this. This is the one thing we do. We're a private business, but we're paid for out of OHIP here. And I'm not telling anybody that they actually should be okay with that. Like, I don't mean to tell anyone how to feel about this, but it just occurred to me that it took a couple couple of days this week until stories came out and began sort of going like, oh, it turns out we already have a version of this. So we have a Shouldice clinic that does hernia repairs in Toronto. And I read in the Windsor Star that they already have a clinic out there that's doing cataract surgeries. And that's going to be the one they base the cataract model on here. I think it's important to have the debate 
about what our healthcare system should look like. But before we do that, I think we should at least admit what it looks like already. A lot of what's being proposed now is not new. It's an expansion. And I don't think the broader public knows that. I don't even think much of the press knew that. The process is already well underway, duly noted. One last one here. Have you read Bill Morneau's book? No, I haven't. I think I might this time. Normally I wouldn't because normally these things are actually terrible, but this one actually seems like it might be more interesting. Maybe I'm just being sucked in by the press, but this one, I read very few political memoirs because I've tried and they make me hate my life, but I don't know. Does this one seem a little bit more interesting? No, no, you're being sucked in by the press. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't understand why we do Morneau the favor. It's like this thing that happens when somebody, member of the establishment and a, a wealthy scion to begin with, flames out, you know, by his own doing. And then inevitably, once the news stories calm down, you get the memoir of my time in cabinet. I don't know why book publishing companies publish them. I know they don't sell particularly well. I know that they're always just about brand rehab. You know, he kind of came off with some smears on his reputation. He was found to have broken the conflict of interest act, right? He broke the law. And so, you know, he wants to repair his reputation and he writes a book. Listen to this. The Globe and Mail, John Ibbotson, in his book review, Bill Morneau got into politics because he wanted to improve Canada's dismal economic productivity with, within an environmentally responsible and socially progressive framework. He got out because he lost respect for Justin Trudeau. That's bullshit. He got out because he got thrown out. Yeah. Right? Like, what the fuck is that? He got out because he lost respect for Justin. Like, why is it the job of the media to rewrite history to serve this guy? He was taking vacations and his daughter was taking a job from the same organization that he was handing millions of dollars to in government money. Like, that wouldn't fly for anybody in a powerful position in any institution. And yes, he was the fall guy because other people were wrong too, and he took the hit for it. But, like, he wasn't the wrong guy to go down. He was thrown out of cabinet because he fucked up and broke the law. No, it's because he lost respect for Justin Trudeau. Give me a fucking break. Not only did he fuck up, that, which he did. I agree with you entirely on that. He also didn't have the political skills to navigate the fallout of the fuck up here. Not defending the fuck up. It was an overt fuck up here. But I've seen better politicians sort of stick handle their way through worse fuck ups here. He fucked up. And then he didn't know how to try and handle the fuck up and everything he tried to do made it worse. So yeah, look, I, I, I agree with you entirely. So I, I will, I will give you a duly noted 100% on that one. I will say what might be more interesting about Morneau's book though, is that I think unlike most political memoirs, which are entirely about score settling, or as you said, sort of reputation polishing, I think he actually is trying to make a separate point here about the economy. And that might be interesting. I'll say duly noted to you then, sir. Mutual duly noted. All right, Matt, I, I want to talk about this before we close today. It's just like one story that my colleague Aviva forwarded to me caught my attention. It was an opinion piece in the Financial Times, Post Media Financial Times. What climate alarmism about polar bears gets wrong. And it goes on. It's actually a piece of media criticism because it's, it's responding to a story that the AP put out just before Christmas that got picked up all around the world. Because, you know, stories with bears in them always do well. And it was a story about how the polar bear population has been declining between 2017 and 2021, according to a government report. And what this opinion writer was saying was that the report doesn't seem to exist. Everybody's writing about this polar bear problem 
she can't find the underlying report. She called it science by press release. And I fell down a bit of a hole here. Like, what? Like, that can't be true, can it? We can't find the report, right? And then I was like, well, well like, I fell down another hole because I was, I was looking at this uh, contributor. Her name is Susan J. Crockford. Her other contributions, she's been writing for the Financial Post for years now, written like a lot of stories about polar bears. And she wrote a story about, you remember that like David Attenborough Netflix flick where all the walruses were plunging to their death? Once at the top of the 80 meter cliffs, they rest until it's time to return to the sea in search of food. These gory footage of, because climate change was forcing these walruses to like jump off of rocks and they, you, you could see them just exploding in like walrus bombs on the rocks. This is a sad reality of climate change. Um, they'd be on the ice right now if they could be, um, but there's no option but to come to land. And they're just a danger to themselves. Um, she was challenging that that was actually caused by climate change. And she even suggested that maybe it was uh, maybe it was David Attenborough. They had to be spooked by something. Maybe it was a polar bear. Oh, he was just flinging them over the cliff. Sort of. She <laughs> she actually speculated that it was the Netflix uh, documentary crew sending a drone that would spook the walruses. And I was like, well, that sounds like it has less basis than this AP report about polar bears. Like that just seems like like total speculation on your part, Susan J. Crockford. Then I fell down a completely separate hole, which was who is Susan J. Crockford? Can I talk about Susan J. Crockford for a minute? Go for it. So like I say, she's been writing about polar bears for The Post, uh, your former employer, The Financial Post, for, for years. Uh, she's written books about it. She's written a book called The Polar Bear Catastrophe That Never Happened. She wrote a book, Polar Bears, Outstanding Survivors of Climate Change. She wrote a book, Fallen Icons, Sir David Attenborough and the Walrus Deception. She wrote a whole book about that Netflix documentary, The Walrus Deception. Who the hell is this woman? And she's like credited as a scientist, as a zoologist. So I, I check it out. Okay, here's what I learned. She has a Bachelor of Science in Zoology. And she has a doctorate in interdisciplinary studies. She did publish a book in 2006 called Rhythms of Life, Thyroid Hormone and the Origin of the Species. She tried to rewrite uh, her own theory of evolution. She asserted that thyroid rhythms are the sole cause of virtually all significant evolutionarily significant differences in history traits. Reviewing the book for the University of Chicago Press, Samantha J. Richardson noted that there was no evidence presented for the existence of thyroid hormones in this book. There were errors in the descriptions of molecular biology, biochemistry, and endocrinology. It contained statements that were simply wrong and that the references were not always accurate. So Crockford is, I guess, controversial, but there's more. She's a signatory of the International Conference of Climate Change 2008 Manhattan Declaration, which states that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions from human activity appear to have only a very small impact on global climate. And she has received money from the Heartland Institute. They are an American conservative libertarian public policy think tank that rejects both the scientific consensus on climate change and the scientific consensus on the negative health impacts of smoking. That's who's been funding her. She did not disclose this conflict of interest until it was pointed out. The New York Times wrote about her and found that this polar bear stuff she's been working on, that polar bears are not going extinct, all of this is climate change alarmism, 80% of blogs that are citing scientific basis for this kind of debunking of the polar bear myth rely on Susan Janet Crockford's work. So I found myself falling down this hole like, oh, in the same way that the AP 
spread a story that I, I can't substantiate the the sourcing. And, and that might be an error. Maybe there is like a government study that just hasn't come out yet. Maybe the press release came up before the study. Or someone handed the AP reporter a copy of the report. Yeah, that can happen. Maybe, maybe. Like I'm giving benefit of the doubt that there yeah. is a government report, in, you know, but but I can't find it. It's not out there yet. But it all stems from this, this AP story that spread throughout the world. And, and we should be skeptical of the news that we read. We should be. But all of this climate change denialism as it pertains to polar bear uh, disappearance comes from Susan Janet Crockford. I would suggest we should be a little skeptical of, of, of Susan Janet Crockford. Why has Post Media relied on this one polar bear expert for like 10 years who is not a polar bear expert? I, I don't know specifically, and I don't recall, as you as you said, I, I, I worked there for a long time, and I even edited the FP comment page for a, a couple of years. I don't specifically recall running anything by her, but I, I guess I'd have to go look through the archive here. My guess would honestly be, and I know this will not be a, a satisfactory answer, but basically the editor gets up every day and he's like, all right, this is how much space I have to fill. What do I have in the tank? Some of that, as you know, is generated by your internal people and the rest isn't. It's probably as something as inane as this person just keeps submitting articles. And one of the things that has always scared the hell out of me as an editor at The Post and, and elsewhere as well, it is very hard to fact check the authenticity of someone when you don't know anything about the topic. I know enough about Canadian <laughs> politics that I can read something, right? And I can go, yeah. oh, this is bullshit. Or like, this is obviously wrong. Or this person doesn't know anything about anything. I don't know why walruses are falling off cliffs. Like, I wouldn't even know who to reach out to and be like, I need a fact check on whether or not, like, David Attenborough is personally punting walruses onto rocks. <laughs> Where do you even start with that? And I think, you know, as editorial staffs have shrunk, right, like, you don't have the time to always chase this down. How many separate rabbit holes did you go down looking into Crockford? At least two bear holes. <laughs> I think there's another aspect of this that, that we should be honest about. Like, and I think what you're saying is, is, you know, you're forthcoming. You're like, look, I like, don't think that I actually fact check the scientist as an editor of an opinion section, people are doing what chat GPT does to you every day, which is they're trying to present something to you that passes the smell test. Yeah. They're like, okay, he's going to look for this to see what, what are the credentials of the author? He, he's going to look to see is, is it a compelling idea? He, but, but you know, it's, it's got to like look and smell and sound right. But, but you know, you don't have the time to actually do like, I mean, especially when you get to specialized areas of scientific, like you're not actually going to redo the science or do peer review. So like, can we get this past the goalie Yeah, is the job of the people pitching the stuff. But let's be honest. It's not simply those factors. It's that if you're going to post media with an opinion piece that offers a contrary scientific perspective on climate change, you're in the market for those stories. Yes, I think that's true. People know what outlets to pitch to. And whatever your argument is, you know who the friendlies will be and who the unfriendlies will be. I will say there would be times when I would deliberately want to run something completely off access. Like there was never an order to only run things that are in some sort of ideological lockstep because running stuff that is off brand with that is entertaining. The readers like it. It gets your columnists fired up. They start running rebuttals. It, it is fun to include other things that get people fired up and get people engaged. But in general, no, of course you're right. I mean, every freelancer out there and uh, for genuine reasons or, or bad reasons, 
they know who to pitch to. In fact, there's an entire class of basically like communication professionals, right? Whose job it is, is to help you write an op-ed and place it somewhere. And you'll tell them in 10 words, what is the article about? And they'll be like, send this to the star, send this to the post, send this to the sun. Uh Like they know automatically what your best bet will be. I like stirring the pot and causing a little trouble too, but it is concerning. Like nobody wants to be a tool. And when you know that there's a whole machinery behind that pitch that shows up in your inbox where somebody's getting funded by a think tank that doesn't think smoking is bad for you. You know, the interests at play to try to get something past you into the paper. And then we see the whole system by which it goes from an opinion piece to like getting regurgitated. Here's like in 2013, Lawrence Solomon writing in, in the post, polar bears like it hot. Canada's polar bears are also thriving thanks to a free market in bears. And also... We should be listening to Susan Crockford. So you see how it sort of like it creates a basis. It gets it gets regurgitated. It goes through a mainstream media source. Then there are more partisan or special interest blogs that then like can like build a whole case of, of a seemingly a sourced piece with tons of links in it that all draw back. And, and what you find is it's all Susan Crockford. It's a chain, right? Because it starts with, I wrote a book. And then you go, oh, okay, well, if you wrote a book, you must know what you're talking about. Therefore, I shall publish this op-ed. The fact that the op-ed gets published anywhere makes it more likely that some future editor will be like, hey, I've never heard of this person before. Do a Google search. Oh, okay, they've published a bunch of op-eds about this. And then another one gets published. That one then goes into the blog or the social media ecosystem. No, I mean, I will tell you over the years as resources dwindled. And by, by resources, I'm, I'm speaking euphemistically. I mean, people, staff, editors, I became increasingly worried on like a pretty fundamental level that I no longer had the ability in real time to do deep vetting of someone who comes to me. And I've never heard of them before, even if they're writing about something completely normal. Like I I used to say to my colleagues sooner or later, and I hope it's not us, it will be someone. I hope it's not us. Someone is going to pull off a practical joke op-ed where they wrote something that sounds completely sincere, got it published, and the whole thing was actually a scam for like some YouTube documentary or something like, I got a totally bogus op-ed published in a paper. Never happened to me that I know of. (laughs) It will happen to somebody eventually. My first job in media was trying to pull off shit like that. I still have the itch. Did it ever work? Oh, yeah. All the time. (laughs) All the time, my friend. Oh, boy. That shortcuts. Matt, uh, thank you. Thank you. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that you send. Matt Gurney, where can people find you? Uh, Check me out on Twitter, at Matt Gurney. Um, I I write regularly for TVO for The Line, and I'm on SiriusXM every day, so I'm easy to find. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Proulx. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Welcome, Annette. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, listen, if you value this podcast, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, we got stuff for you. Premium access to all of our shows ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you will be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.